Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got lots of things to talk about today. You you know all about uh, the rules are broken, the laws are broken. Sally McManus said it, and the uh, ACTU is in the process of pushing for change to the... Uh, Fair Work Commission and its uh, act. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Don Sutherland about uh, what the Labor Party's got to say about it because uh, the Shadow Minister Brendan O'Connor gave a speech last week to the Sydney Institute about uh, Labor's approach. So we're going to have a chat about that. Big stuff. Uh, later on, we're going to, uh, to uh, look again a little bit more at uh, what Leon Weingard from the ASU has to say about the NDS, NDIS in general uh, with uh, and how employers are dealing with the change in the find, funding model and what that means for workers as well as the recipients of the services. And later on, we're actually going to perhaps have a word with Dr Noah Persil. He's come back. He's going to have a yarn with us about uh, what's going on in the world in general. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Coming up, we'll be talking to Don Sutherland. Feel your spine tingle as the Millennium Chorus sings Haven, their 20th concert. Special guests include Jessica Hitchcock, Sally Ford, Lamine Sonko. In a new space, Plenary, Melbourne Convention Centre. On Sunday, August 20th, at 2.30pm, go to boite.com.au or call 94171983. The Boite Millennium Chorus. A 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on this Saturday morning, and if you're on podcast, that's fine too. Don, are you there? Yes, I am, Annie. Good morning to you and to all your listeners. Yes, and uh, you uh, have been examining the speech that uh, Shadow Minister Brendan O'Connor gave to the uh, Sydney Institute last Thursday. It's important, isn't it? Because uh, it's all very well for the ACTU to stand there and say that the the rules are broken. But what's the Labor Party got to say about it? Well, I think the first point is 
the one that you make, and that is that at some point or another, um, the ACTU uh, and the national union leaders uh, will sit down in a series of discussions, possibly um, already beginning to happen, but stretching over uh, you know, one to two years in, and will get very formal if Labor uh, becomes the new national government. So it is very important for those of us who are deep activists and deep organisers in the Change the Rules campaign to be very alert to what uh, the ALP and also the Greens uh, might be up to with regard to workers' rights. Uh, I think the best thing to do is to, to get clues about what is going on, including the positive developments and the more negative ones, is to look at things like state conferences of the ALP, but also particularly the speeches of the Shadow Minister uh, for Workplace Relations, uh, who is Brendan O'Connor. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing in the last two or three weeks since we've talked. Yeah. Um, it's worthwhile, I think, before getting into what uh, conferences and what O'Connor is saying, just to do a quick review of what it is that the Change the Rules campaign uh, is trying to change in well, yeah, the Fair Work Act. Because there's, yeah, been, so pl- quick... there's been plenty of evidence that uh, the, the Fair Work Act is heavily uh, weighted towards the employer class. That, that's exactly right. And uh, you see broken rules in regard to the ability of workers themselves to deal with the underpayment of their wages. You see broken rules in regard to the enterprise bargaining process that uh, is still loaded heavily in favour of employer rights against workers' rights. And you see broken rules in uh, what is happening with award changes through the Fair Work Commission's award review process. In fact, they've made a joke. They've made an absolute joke of the EBA system. I mean, we just heard on Stick Together, if people were listening, that a poorly paid group of people have been told that, uh, you know, we're going to scrap your EBA. And because it's not in the negotiating period, these people can't take any industrial action. Yes, I was listening to that. And that's a very... um uh, that's a very stark example of how inadequate the Fair Work Act that Labor designed uh, through the period from 2006 through to 2009, how inadequate their effort was at that time. And, of course, there are also certain union leaders that have to acknowledge that they were uh, somewhat inadequate themselves in the negotiations. Uh, the way this works, just for the benefit of uh, listeners, well, the way it worked from last time is just quickly worth noting. Uh, what Julia Gillard did when she was the Shadow Minister for Workplace Relations in the prospective Rudd government was uh, begin a process, and it went through two, at least two stages of setting up Labor policy, uh, that is, parliamentary Labor's policy. And then when elected, she created a tripartite a consultation process that where the employers and the unions had equal status with the government in designing the changes to Howard's old laws, known as work choices, to design what became the broken Fair Work Act that we are also 
bitterly angry with these days. So we've got to keep that in the back of our mind. The, the ACTU's shopping list is for changes to the Act is, as you can imagine, quite comprehensive. And I won't, I won't right now go through all of the. No, but what's the key? What are the keys? Well, the... there are two levels of change, two key levels. The first level includes things like the unrestricted right to withdraw labour at any time and for any matter, and for unions to be able to seek improvements to awards, uh, including new uh, multi-industry awards, either through consent with employers or through agreement backed up by industrial action rights. And there should be no content restriction restriction in agreements and, I would assume, in awards also. Where does it place... Where, where, where does, uh, Dom, before you go on, where does it place EBAs? Because it sounds like Enterprise Bargaining Agreements, which was one of the cornerstones of the Accord, are really actually, you know, uh, too small a shoe for the situation. Yes, well, I think... Uh, I think where the HTU is heading is that enterprise bargaining would continue, but it would not be necessarily the primary way in which workers could establish higher uh, wages and higher standards and conditions. That uh, sitting alongside enterprise bargaining, there would be the restoration of forms of award and multi-agreement bargaining. Right, okay. So there would be a sort of... uh, It it, it, it would not reduce the state... My impression is it would not reduce the status of enterprise bargaining, but would escalate or elevate the status of award and uh, multi-agreement bargaining. All right, so collective bargaining. Is that what you mean? Or is that a dirty word? Well, bargaining that has the capacity to take wages out of competition which right. is one of the fundamental rationales of the formation of unions 200-plus years ago. Yeah, fascinating. Yep, that's right. It's a fundamental core concept in unionism is for bargaining that enables workers to take uh, wages out of competition. In other words, it says that there is go- in the capitalist system there is going to be competition between employers and even set up internally by employers and the con- competition competition should not be used by employers to drive down wages and conditions. Oh well, you they should tell. Compete on other grounds. You should talk about talk to Glen Core in the Oakey North situation up uh, near Rockhampton. They want them to sign a contract that says that they'll be paid based on profit, which they have no control over, yeah. instead of for their wages and uh, for their hours of work. Absolutely, that, that would be a good conversation, and I hope the union. Is, wins that struggle because that is a dead end for them. Um, now, the second type of rights, though, that the ACTU is pushing for is also relevant when you look at what Labor is up to. Now, these are more... The, the first set of rights that I've been talking about are about workers' power. Yep. Workers being able to take matters into their own hands and have some degree of power when they go themselves face-to-face with employers or employer organisations. It gives real power to workers and their unions. And it makes more lo- it gives more logic, incidentally, for workers to actually join unions. Yeah, OK, now, so what's the second? Yeah. Rights, the second type of rights 
are sort of at a different level. They're still important, but they're different. They are about things like rights for union officials and unions to provide support to workers and includes unrestricted right of entry to workplaces when uh, needed by workers and members of unions to investigate and prosecute employers on breaches of agreements and awards, including the right to inspect wages records. And it includes also strong arbitration, stronger arbitration and dispute settling powers for the Fair Work Commission and also uh, stronger in, uh, non-union inspectorates that are able to uh, check up on employer um, compliance with the Act. Uh, in, in a but sense, the in a sense, yeah, yeah. Up. But in a, in a sense, what they're doing is uh, reversing, uh, returning uh, to a, a situation where industrial relations is taken back from the productivity uh, commission element that the Liberal Party ha- or, or maybe others have put industrial relations in, right? Yes. Well. Exactly. The the Productivity Commission have had a big influence over government in creating what you could call a neoliberal plank, uh, well, an important plank in a neoliberal approach to managing the economy in workplace relations laws. So workplace, uh, workplace relations laws are an essential part of the whole neoliberal framework and the Productivity Commission has been very influential in setting up not just the Liberal Party uh, laws, but also the current Fair Work Act 2009, which was created by a that, Labor government. That's right. Yeah, I just want to remind listeners they're talking to uh, they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast. We're talking to Don Sutherland, and uh, we're talking about uh, uh, the laws are broken and uh, what's happening for workers in the future in the minds of the ACTU and perhaps also a future Labor government. Can we go on to what the Shadow Minister Brendan O'Connor said in his speech because it it has echoes of uh, Labor's solution from the Gillard period? Uh, Yes, I think it does. And um, uh, the, uh, the speech he gave to the Sydney Institute, which is a notorious right-wing neoliberal think tank, interesting in itself, on the 3rd of August, did give us some clues about the current thinking of the Labor Party hierarchy. And this is very important for everyone who is deeply active and organising in workplaces and industry at the moment to take note of. So... The first thing, I think there were four, four things, four or five things in this speech that we could pay attention to. The first one is interesting. He does seem to agree that the Fair Work Act 2009 is indeed laden with rules that are broken from the point of view of workers. He does seem to acknowledge that. Uh, he doesn't really explicitly go the next step to acknowledge that they were created and or perpetuated by uh, the uh, Rudd-Gillard-Rudd governments, uh, and especially in that period in 2006-2009 when the negotiations went on with employers and unions to to work out what the Fair Work Act would look like. There are also... So that's the second thing. Uh, The third thing is that uh, there are some 
um, specific commitments that they made in the 2016 election that they're only committed to. And very, I won't go through all of those, but they include reforming the definition of casual work, restoring penalty rates in awards and legislating so that they, they can never be cut again, uh, introducing reforms to ensure that temporary overseas workers are not being exploited and underpaid, and that there is a level playing field for all workers in Australia. So when he when, when he says things like when he says things like um, overseas workers won't be exploited, blah 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 blah, um, yeah. how does he intend to do that? Did he have any well, clues no to that? There's no detail that I've hit on that, but that okay, would be good, okay. I just wanted to know. Up. We should follow up on that uh, because this is a really a big area where. This classic problem... Well, words are cheap. Yes, well, this is where they're using competition in wages to drive down wages of Australian resident resident workers. Yeah. So it's a really good example of the problem, the classic problem. Uh, There are some other uh, things that they went to the election with in 2016, but I won't go into all of those. I've mentioned some of the really important ones. On... When we get to the crucial proposals to restore direct workers' rights around award bargaining and industrial action, uh, he remains very vague. And rather than asserting what they would do, he poses a set of questions that point to what Labor's changes might be. There is nothing at all in his speech about direct workers and union rights and union members' rights to combined industrial action. So there is no, there is no, it's almost as though this is an elephant in the room and the less he he talks about it, the less it is likely to happen. Well, you know, given given that he's talking to such a right-wing reactionary group of people, uh, one assumes that he's putting his toes in the water. Did he have a, a, a in a classic speech or an essay, as it were, you'd have an opening paragraph with a general outline of your general direction. Did he give any flavour of the general direction of Labor? Vague even that it might be? Yeah. Well, um, as I said, the general direction is that they they are fessing up that the current Act is broken. Right, OK. Uh, and therefore, there are repairs that need to be made to it. And why, uh, though? Why did he say that? Why did I mean, it's all very well to say a slogan, but why did he... He, he set up a premise, the law is broken, yeah. are broken. Why do they need to be fixed? Why does he think that, you know, it, he could deliver this notion to a room of right-wing reactionaries that would please them to know that it has to be fixed? What's wrong? Is it the economy? Are we going down the well, drain? In part, it is the, the the main the main reason the main reason is that the ACTU is run running an extremely effective education. It's an education phase campaign at the moment. Yep, highlighting the the hyper exploitation of workers. Yeah, particularly those uh, now dozens of examples of, of wage theft. Yep, and how how much of a business model it is and how systemic it is across 
the economy. And then secondly, the ACTU has linked it very effectively to the rise in inequality. Yeah, and uh, and it's more. interesting, and it's interesting too that uh, the uh, business class is getting very close to being able to be easily represented as a criminal class. Well, big elements of it are, and there is all sorts of not just corrupt, but also breaching of the law, which um, sometimes is criminal and sometimes is not, even though it's mo- always morally criminal to thieve. From workers, yeah. mind you, wage wage theft is really you know systemically it's a part of the capitalist system. Yeah, it's a business theft. model. It's a business model. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, paying under the minimum rate is wage theft uh, at one level. And that's in a, in a strict legal sense, in a legal sense. Yeah. But of course, wage theft also occurs because a group, any worker or a group of workers that go to work, they produce so much value in goods and services. But there, you know, that might be one hundred thousand dollars worth of goods and services over the week. But collectively, they might only get about ten thousand dollars of that. So yeah. there's ninety thousand dollars that is going off to the boss's profits. So um, the, um, the uh, theft, theft is endemic. But the, really, what we're talking about here is uh, theft in the form of the underpayment of wages and the non and the non-compliance with conditions and agreements and awards. Oh, and also, and, the, and you know, the making society completely threadbare because of it. But we're getting, uh, we're on, uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast. We're talking to Don Sutherland because uh, we've only got a certain amount of time, Don. Uh, can you explain this notion of tripartite approach? It's a great word. It looks nice. What are, what's Labor talking about? Well, I, O'Connor is very clear that he wishes to repeat exactly the same process, or maybe I'm overstating the word exactly, but he wants to repeat the same process, which we can call a tripartite process. That is, mm. he wants to treat uh, the... uh, uh, develop the discussions and negotiations with the major parties in regards to uh, workplace laws, that is, the employers and the unions, where he treats the employers on an equal footing with the unions, who are the representatives of workers. And therefore, the employers who have wallowed in the opportunities to break the rules Mm. are going to be invited to be in equal footing, just like Julia Gillard did back in 2006 to 2009, to uh, create the new rules. Oh, well, that's interesting. I wonder how they're going to... Oh, they're going to stay their their knife uh, knives with bloody uh, you know blood on their hands from uh, well, they when can... they're doing the negotiations, eh? Well, the employers are very skillful at this. Yeah, sure. Uh, when they saw back, uh, this is very important to remember the lessons from two thousand six, two thousand and nine. If you are a deep organizer, a deep activist, a union delegate, delegate, and so on, because we, that's when we got dudded. The process, this tripartite process, contributed significantly to the dudding of workers in the 2006-2009 period, and it was a process that enabled the broken rules that we experience today to be created. 
Now, so but, uh, can, no, 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 you, you, you're now, you're now um, this is a, a very salient point that people have to keep in mind. But And as I said, times are, uh, are fleeting. But um, I really want to know about this extra thing that you w- were talking about because this is similar to the notion of the, the brazenness that uh, employers have taken it upon themselves to basically hogtie workers. The Mineral Council have come out with their proposal to restore statutory individual contracts, which is basically work choices, isn't it? Yes, yes. And I, I was going to... You, you've hit on, upon one of the perfect examples uh, that has recently emerged that proves that... I mean, why would the Minerals Council go into a process with Brendan O'Connor and other Labor uh, uh, heavies to create new rules that are likely to be fair. That's right. There is no logic to it, and yet O'Connor, I think, is either being ingenuous. Uh, I'm not sure what he's being. Is it's the height of naivety and idealism to think that employers can be helpful in creating uh, workers' rights in the a, a new Fair Work Act? Or maybe it's a publicity campaign. Or it's, you know, trying to be reasonable with, uh, at this early stage of the situation. Perhaps we could be fair, uh, 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 try and be as fair as possible. Reasonable, pragmatic. R and P. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, this is, pragmatism, it's not really pragmatism. Uh, this, is, this is really idealism. Ah, yes. To think that the employers will play a constructive role in creating the new roles. I think pragmatically we know there have to be discussions with the employers but to give them an equal status in the process would be anti the interests of workers. All I can say is that uh, the labour movement needs some good lawyers. It, it, sorry, I missed... Ne- we need some good lawyers that read the fine print and still actually believe in justice. I think that's about... A, my own opinion is that's about a third-order priority. The most important thing we need right now is loads and loads of education so that the movement we're trying to build is really big, really mass, and it has it takes form through a rising mindful militancy in workplaces, which is coordinated across lots of workplaces on an industry basis, and secondly, that has a community expression just like the uh, Your Rights at Work campaign uh, that was dudded in the end back in 2006-7. So people have to be really um, focused. That's what we need. They're the most important things that will determine the outcome of the ACTU's dealings with a prospective Labor government and with the Greens over the next two or three years. Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because that's classic form for unions. Uh, that it's it should be led by the wor- the workers. People need yes. to be able be able to make informed decisions, and they have to be able to uh, go the long haul, right? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And it's very important that we be honest and recognise that one of the big strategic mistakes made by union leaders back in uh, that period. Uh, around 2007, when the current broken laws were created, that the quality 
of reporting back from the union negotiators at that time dealing with Gillard and the employers to the memberships of unions who were the driving force of the Your Rights at Work campaign, uh, the quality of reporting back and consultation with members was very poor. Right. And 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 if we if we recognised that the process back then was broken, and because it was broken, it produced the broken laws, then we have to get a new model. And the new model for, I think, is in the old union, strong union uh, principle, that it's the workers who drive the character and the outcome of any negotiations, not just union leaders. Right, yes, of course. I agree. We, we, if mm. we start from that principle, I am sure that a mechanism can be developed whereby Sally McManus and Jed Carney and the national secretaries of the unions who go face-to-face with a prospective Labor leadership in designing the new Act there will be much stronger, a much stronger say for uh, workers who are members of the unions to uh, influence the outcomes. Well, it's interesting, Don. We get a phone call from a long-term unionist who critiques various elements of the, the show, and he was saying that, uh, oh, they shouldn't be demonstrating outside the corporations. They should be demonstrating outside the ACTU. And he was in relation to, because he's an old fella, in relation to the Accord. But I said to him, well, you know, things have changed at the ACTU. And he said, oh, with the with the uh, woman in, yes, well, we'll wait and see. Yes, well, I think um, uh, we, we can't afford to wait and see. We've got to... What I, what I strongly encourage is that all of us who are deep organising, uh, deep active, uh, activating... Uh, in workplaces and in industries, is to ensure that the big mistakes made strategically back in 2007 and thereabouts are not repeated. Uh, And that's why I uh, am highlighting this simple message. It's not just the rules that are broken. It it is also Labor's or Labourism's process for changing the rules that is broken. And both of those things need to be tackled. Yeah, it's a fight for our lives, really, isn't it? Well, I think it's a big fight. for If we're going to win the fight against inequality, uh, and this is, I think, a good thing from the point of view of O'Connor, he does... Labor is recognising that workers' rights, as captured in the Fair Work Act, uh, are... A big factor in the struggle around inequality. There is a link between the Fair Work Act, the rules that are broken, and the rise of inequality. That's an important recognition that we all need to work with, and uh, and therefore that means that the struggle over the new what will be the new laws is vital if we want to reduce poverty in Australia and to reduce inequality. Thanks, Don. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for uh, going through the speech and giving us a a, a look into uh, what uh, is now heading towards an almost American-style length, uh, step-by-step approach to the next election, which everybody wishes would come. 
Maybe we could talk about Americanism in, a, in industry and workplace relations in another time. But anyway, solidarity to everybody. Best wishes to your listeners. Bye-bye, mate. Bye. I often feel the only thing standing between us falling off that precipice and actually fighting our way back up the top of the hill is the trade union movement. I really believe that. We have the numbers, we have the commitment, we have the heart, we have the will to really fight. And the only way we're going to win that fight is to grow the union movement. That was Jed Carney talking up union. Stay tuned to 3CR for more union news. 8.55 on your AM dial or 3cr.org.au. Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C. You are. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, we were just listening to Don Sutherland's analysis of uh, Shadow Minister Brendan O'Connor's speech to the reactionary right wingers at the Sydney Institute last week. It's all very important because the campaign leading up to the next federal election. Uh, we can't afford to lose this battle because uh, the uh, whole landscape, industrial landscape, the whole life's landscape of uh, the future of this country is in the palm of our hands. Now, there's a couple of different things going on around the place. I'd like to remind you about Lost in Science, which is one of uh, 3CR's great national programs, which goes around the community radio network. And uh, you can hear it on uh, 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 early in the morning during the week. Uh, Lost in Science, a focus on science. They're, they've got their trivia night coming up. It's part of the Science Week. You didn't know there was Science Week? Well, there is. It's 7th of August. Uh, oh, no, 14th of August. It's on. Uh, picture scientific knowledge against the giant brains of the Lost in Science team. 
at their annual trivia night. It helps to keep their show on in the air and it's on Monday the 14th of August. That's this Monday at the Birmingham Hotel corner of Smith and Johnson Street, Fitzroy. The doors open at 6.30pm for pub meals and 7.30pm is a start to the great trivia night for Lost in Science. Tickets are $15 for 3CR subscribers, $20 for future subscribers and can be purchased online. That means you can go on 3CR's web page and uh, book. You can probably pay at the door as well. And uh, they want you to come along and join a team or you can bring your own four to eight people to share the fabulous prizes. It's part of National Science Week. Where is that? When is that? Monday the 14th of August at the Birmingham Hotel corner of Smith and Johnson Street, Fitzroy. That's 6.30 for pub meals and the 7.30pm start. You'll be put into a team or you can bring a team along. There are other things going on. August the 18th to the 20th down at the Electrical Trades Union building in North Melbourne, Radical Ideas. It's been put together by Resistance, which is the Young Socialist Alliance group. Um, It's uh, talking about racism, colonialism and Islamophobia, jobs, housing and wealth inequality, feminism and LGBTQI rights, environmental sustainability. It's got a great group of people talking. It's featuring guest speakers, Nathan Roberts, a Corbyn campaigner and socialist from Britain, Celeste Little, black feminist, ranter, blogger and NTU organiser, also a leading light in the Indigenous community, Justice Justin Ackers, Chasson, US activist, co-author of No One Is Illegal, and Paz Fugione, who's uh, the coordinator of the South Australian Anti-Poverty Network. Great guy. Uh, it uh, costs uh, $80 solidarity for a whole weekend, uh, $50 standard, $30 concession, $15 high school. There you go. There's also one-day prices. You want to know more about it? Then you should go to radicalideasconference.com. There are other things happening. Uh, This sounds really interesting. Matirio, which is a premiere of a new Brazilian documentary. It's uh, award-winning by Vincent Carelli. It's a film about the resistance of the Guarani Gaoa peoples in Brazil. It's on Saturday, August the 19th at 6.30pm at Hot Shots. That's at 16 to 20 Barclay Street in Footscray. Drinks and dinner and drinks are available. Uh, you want to know more about it? Lasnet.solidarity at gmail.com, uh, $10 or 5 That's lasnet, L-A-S-N-E-T, dot solidarity at gmail.com. It's Mari... Matirio, which is a, it's a kind of a um, sort of film opportunity that you will not get in the mainstream. There's other film opportunities, Melbourne's Latin American documentary Film Nights, Resistance and Popular Struggles. That's uh, going to be, they've got this full program. The next one's on August, Friday the 25th, 6.30pm, Short Stocko, Colombia and Mexico Zambatistas. And at 8.38pm, Beyond My Grandfather Allende. And uh, that's August 
Friday the 25th, 6.30 start. Uh, the fe- main feature, 8pm, and it's at the Melbourne Tra- Trades Hall, Level 2, back building. Uh, ah, this is a much more local thing. March to Save Lives, Rally for Supervised Injecting in North Richmond. This is a major campaign that's going on in a local community. Sunday, the 27th of August, 2017, 10.30am, gather at Jonas Street, J-O-N-A-S, Jonas Street, North Richmond, next to the train station. They're going to march at 11am along Victoria Street to Lenox Street, 11.20am, share a minute silence to remember those who have lost their lives. Residents Victorians uh, Safe Drug Solutions. If you want to know more about that, www.vicstreetdrugssolution.org. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. We've got more. Wonderful Sam Cooke, Chain Gang. 
You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, I thought that I would remind people of uh, an interview with Sally McManus, the uh, secretary of the ACTU, who has kicked off the campaign. It's And it's a genuine campaign around uh, rights at work. It's uh, The laws are broken and they're specifically aimed at uh, the Fair Work Act. And as uh, Don in the earlier part of the program pointed out, this was a construction uh, that we can thank the uh, Gillard and Rudd government for. And it's not that uh, Gillard wasn't a good lawyer or a great negotiator, because in actual fact, history will show that she was the supreme god of negotiation. But it just is full of holes. And uh, the employer class has uh, employed lots of uh, well-paid lawyers to come up with ways and means. And there's such a litany now of uh, ways and means for employers to actually assault workers' rights and, of course, then as a consequence uh, create an unequal society to such a degree that uh, the dreams that people might have of, well, natural order of things, that their children should be able to have a future, that you could have a roof over your head, you could have food on your table... They have been now relegated to dreams for a lot of people. Outrageous. Um, if you want to know more about the various ways that uh, the uh, uh, the employers class has been undermining workers' rights using the uh, Fair Work Act, uh, just listen to Stick Together because every year, every week it's one or the other. And as I pointed out in my chat with uh, Don, the Oakey North uh miners being asked to sign a contract that says that they'll be paid based on profit rather than the hours of work is just the tip of the iceberg. Or as someone said in a film I saw recently, yes, I left the iceberg at home. Anyway, we'll listen to a short interview that I did with Sally McManus earlier in the piece uh, in uh, May just to remind us of the general direction and the role that all workers need to play in this massive change. Yes, of course. Um, I'm from 3PR Stick Together show. Can I ask you? Yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. What I'd like to know is, uh, well, one, congratulations for you getting your job, but uh, what are the big challenges? Well, the biggest challenges are, I think, um, insecure work and the fact that 40% of uh, workers now don't even have sick days or annual leave because they're in insecure work. Alongside that, you've got basically employers who just thumb their noses at um, the rights that workers have, which is the reasons why we see a massive amount of wage theft. And all throughout our system, we see examples of where workers don't have strong enough rights at work, and that's the biggest challenge. We've got to um, reimagine them and make them stronger. There's some really creative methods that the corporations are using to uh, throw workers out of into the cold, like the business about making um, tugboat uh, workers part of a trust, for example, and mining workers. Uh, this is part of what you're talking about, unfair laws, isn't it? So um, I think the employers have realised that if they try and just take away rights in the Fair Work Act that there'll be a big backlash 
So what they've done instead is they've invested in lawyers and they've gone about working out every single way they can get around it. So this sort of telling people that they're contractors when they're not contractors, using labour hire just to replace workers and to negotiate agreements that are only two people signed off on. I could, like, the list is so long, I could go on and on and on about it. They're all mechanisms that, you know, the power of capital are using to get around what our rights are. So uh, what I'm saying is our workplace laws are broken, they're not strong enough, and that's because of all of these examples, and we need to change that. Now, you just said that you believe in a change comes from the bottom. Can you expand on that? Well, there's nothing in the world that's um, brought about real, pos- real change, real lasting change than people. And actually, it's simple at the end. It's just people deciding to stick together and to be unified and to all push in one direction. It's the uh, most powerful thing in human history, always has, always will be. And I think that's the same if you look at small fights or little fights. If you look at what we've got to do in terms of changing um, the rights workers at work, there's going to be a lot of powerful people who won't like that. And the way to counter that isn't through just TV ads or just through, you know, from the top, you know, advocating or negotiation behind closed doors. Essentially, it's going to be up to us to be able to build a movement of people that take on that power because that's going to be the only antidote. And so, practically speaking, you're saying at workplaces people need to pass, you know... The first thing people need to do is start talking about um, inequality and about power and about how some people in our society have too much of it and working people don't have enough of it. Once people see that that's actually what's going on, it makes sense that we need stronger protections and stronger rights in the face of that change. Then what we need to do is we need to point out all the different ways that our um, laws, our rights um, aren't working anymore. So every time an employer decides to casualise work, workforces, they lock out workers, um, I could go on and on, wage theft that happens all the time. These are all examples. They're all demonstrating. Oh, like lawyering, uh, people yeah, losing... Cancelling the- enterprise agreements is another new way that they've found through their lawyers to do this. We've got to make the public case and we've got to win the argument in the public that we need these changes in order to be able to build a movement. Thanks very much. No worries. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. A weak solidarity Bricky team listener when, well, first, a small aside, as we are so upset watching US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor stuff everything up and expose the whole show, we'd have to think the one minor downside could be World War Three. But a week when big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull announced True Blue Aussie had become the most democratic utopia on this ever-heating planet. Parliament, he looked every inch the statesman, has no right to make laws. Unlike the Socialist Party, the caring business class party believes the true Blue people must have a say on every motion that comes before this House. And at $122 million per motion, it's democracy on the cheap, worth every one of the 12.2 billion cents. Speaker, the Minister for Helping the Filthy Rich Matthias Rotten Tudor rose to his feet with impeccably atrocious timing. I move they do what we can to help the filthy rich bill. No, no, the whole front bench leapt to their feet looking aghast. We must hold a postal ballot first. Uh, so, Malcolm, if, say, 30 or so percent of true Blue Aussies return their postal vote, a postal survey, 
whatever on the do what we can to help the filthy rich bill, then what? It will become law or not based on the result? Well, not necessarily. Caring business class party and hayseed and sheepshit party MPs will have a right to oppose what the postal vote says. After all, we are elected to pass laws, although none of us oppose helping the filthy rich. No, Parliament will then vote on the matter, regardless of the postal vote. A postal survey, exactly. Real democracy. At this point, the Minister for Train Killers, Christopher Paydener, addressed the chair. Uh, Mr Speaker, I move we adjourn for lunch. Whoa, Christopher, whoa, his colleagues chorus. Slow down. It has to be put to a postal vote first. On a totally unrelated matter in the Happy Families Department, Christmas dinner should be fun, fun, fun at the a bit more for the bosses Forster table with former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses giving a much appreciated warning. If you don't like same-sex marriage, vote no. Vote no. If you're worried about religious freedom and freedom of speech, vote no. Vote no. And if you don't like political correctness, vote no. Don't like political correctness, vote no. Now, as a presumably heterosexual man who exudes political incorrectness, he has every right to proffer that advice because he does not have a vested interest. But how shameful his sister, Christine Forster, retorting with such venom. If you value mutual respect, vote yes. If you want all true Blawazis to be equal, vote yes. If you believe in free speech, vote yes. How dare she? Here's a woman in a same-sex relationship. In other words, a woman who does have a vested interest and therefore no right to comment, even contradicting Tiny's use of free speech. And to make matters worse, she's not an elected representative, not elected to make laws on these matters, like, as Tidy insists, making laws not to make laws. Let's hope the true blue Aussie dear baby Jesus lobby gets its way and vilification laws are waived for this postal survey campaign so they can say what they really think. Explain the dear baby Jesus views. Shame, Christine Forster, shame. Meanwhile, the witch bank, which used to be our bank, filthy rich supremo Ian Ra-Nar-Rabon, conceded, we made mistakes. Uh, mistakes, Ian? Well, one mistake. Uh, but there were thousands. One mistake, 53,713 times. And Ian said, heads will roll, young tellers down in the branches, and maybe the odd cleaner in local branches who should have seen all these crooks, uh, no customers, spending half the night stuffing cases of lovely, lovely money into the witch bank coppers with a whole packet of laundry detergent accompanying each caseload. Uh, but, but doesn't the buck stop with you, Ian? The buck? No. But millions and millions of lovely, lovely bucks, yes, they stop on my great big desk, pile up so high you can hardly see me, and right now I think that's not a bad idea. And the aforementioned Minister for Financing the Filthy Rich, Matthias Rotten Tudor, asked a comment, said he couldn't comment while the matters were being investigated, a true principled observer of the sub-judice principle, similar to... 
Well, we know the government wouldn't comment on unproven allegations, similar to, therefore, how the government refused to attack the evil construction unions while allegations it, the government, had made were being investigated by the Smash the Evil Unions, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission, it commissioned to smash the evil unions by investigating the allegations it had made. Nothing if not consistent. But on that score, we can't blame them. On last week's program, the Solidarity Brickie team mentioned that poor old Scabby the Rat had been deflated by the courts on behalf of great transnational energy giant SO the Workers' Lips. And following that caring employer's court decision, the same court, the Fair Work No Longer Work Choices Just Looks Like It Commission, acting for that highly respected energy and coal giant Glen Rottentuther, ruled that at the Oakey Hill Mine up in Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land, Scabby couldn't wave at workers who just want to go to work and not be abused by illegal thugs fighting for selfish interests like preserving their wages and conditions when those wages and conditions are crippling poor Glen Rotten to the, to the core. The court ruled the picketers who incidentally are picketing not because they're on strike, which is illegal, showing no respect for the law, but because Glen Rotten to the has locked them out, which is legal and shows respect for the law. It's a goddamn great law, board member Chuck bloated the fourth chuckled. And speaking of the fourth, the fourth lockout in two months, all because the evil union and lazy avaricious workers won't accept a few little changes Glen Rotten to the wants to make to their wages and conditions. Guaranteed we can be sure to provide a win-win situation given Glen Rotten to the would have drawn up the new agreement with the interests of its workers in mind. Which brings us back to the law, to Malcolm's decision that Parliament can't pass anything until tested via a $122 million postal ballot, a uh, sorry, postal survey, forcing poor caring employers to themselves pass the laws, the regulations governments used to pass at their behest back in the days when Parliament voted on those things. As so the workers' lips, BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody, bloody huge polluter, Glen Rotten to the et al, have been forced to pass their own laws, own regulations, company policy laws prohibiting harassment, bullying, intimidation on picket lines and on social media. And the court ban on poor old Scabby the Rat and on workers saying hurtful things to poor workers who just want to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay upholds those laws, those company regulations, the right of the great corporates to make the law without wasting money on even a small postal ballot of the workers affected. Because the commission also upholds the right of great corporates to run their own businesses without the interference of evil unions and ignorant workers. After all, what would ignorant workers know about the jobs they do every day? Well, except the everydays when they can't get in the joint and resort to saying hurtful, hurtful things to those decent workers who can get in the joint. As Glenn Rotten to these global coal supremo Peter Fry icebergs bemoaned on behalf of all who care about the economy and the planet. A union returning to 1970s tactics. A union that believes conflict is a way to create and enrich employment. A union that still supports and condones disgraceful behaviour, where gutless bully boys abuse and intimidate those who want to work and those who don't want to have anything to do with their union.
Oh, great point, great point. How dare locked-out workers abuse poor scabs just doing what scabs do? And of course, what better way to enrich employment than to make your workers somewhat less rich? It must so abrade the sensitivity of caring employers, great international corporations, to think there are bully boys out there. Those sensitivities must have been further abraded by the headline, Cliché Leads IR Reform Push, P1 Trublawazi Capitalist Review. Oh no, we can hear the poor caring employers. A former president of the evil ACTU, years bum on the plush seats as Socialist Party Minister, fighting for the evil workers. More pro-worker so-called reform. Yes, that working class hero, Martin Cliché himself. And the reforms? At the end of the day, when the sun sets, bottom line, window of opportunity. OK, OK. Martin had sat down with the great aforementioned resource corporations and worked it all out for the workers. Win-win. Individual agreements. Restrict union right of entry. Well, further restrict, we suppose. Outlaw strike action. Uh, well, further outlaw strike action, we suppose. Binding agreements for the life of projects. Rewarding employees, Martin told the Sydney Institute Tuesday, and imagine it would have been standing room only knowing he was the guest speaker, with well-paid, individually tailored employment agreements. Finally, no, no, I won't listen to such language, listener. Wash your mouth out. That's as bad as Scabby the Rat. A class traitor has to have had a class position in the first place. And caring employers, poor dears, say the caring business class relations balance has tipped far too far in favour of evil unions and greedy workers. Imagine, listener, if it wasn't. Good morning. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. I do the panel for Concrete Gang, and I'm absolutely taken away by some of the comments that some of the working class humour is still there, like a saying like... uh, Oh, he sat back like a a, um, a laughing spider, you know, stuff stuff yeah, that yeah, just yeah. comes out of the air, um, and it seems <clears throat> to be uh, disappearing. Uh, what are your your thoughts about that? Well, yeah, I don't know whether it's disappearing. It's certainly not sufficiently celebrated in the alleged expressions of the community's own self, uh, which has now been sort of commercialised to the point almost of being a fantasy. Um, but I think... Um, I mean, I, I saw a bloke one time in a pub and he was saying um, that he, he didn't like the beer. They didn't serve the sort of beer, the brand of beer that he liked. And he said, this was terrible. And I said, you don't like it? And he said, I think it's the worst beer I've ever tasted. He said, I'll, I'll be glad when I've had enough. <laughs> and I thought, now, there's something about this particular outlook... <laughs> that is, um, he, I mean, he's, he's contained the problem in his alleged response to it. <laughs> the problem is that he shouldn't, he shouldn't be drinking stuff he doesn't like. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he's worked out a philosophy that includes 
getting pissed on stuff that he doesn't like, but being grumpy about it. Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally. It's still the case in this country today. This is 3CR. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're so happy because we've got Dr. Noah Brazil on the line. How are you, Noah? I'm really well, thank you, Annie. How are you? Good. It's great to hear your voice. Yes, it's good to be back. I'm sorry for the long delay. It's been a pretty hectic uh, couple months. Uh, Oh, you mean uh, life intervened? Life intervened a lot. And uh, (laughs) bear with me just for a sec. I'm, I'm... fully committed to this. I'm just giving my three-legged dog yep. a, um, uh, a, a breakfast before she uh, causes too much uh, damage in the place. So, <laughs> well, we're happy. Yeah. We're happy to have you and uh, the, the, life sound, the sounds of life are always good. Good. Yes, they are indeed. They are indeed. So yeah. where shall we start after this long delay? Well, there's so many things to talk about. Uh, I first started to, uh, I mean, of course, inequality is the big thing that's on the uh, uh, on the uh, headlines, except now it's being pushed off the headlines by some postal vote for the rest of Australia to have some say in other people's rights to get married. So, But inequality, yeah. is it doesn't go away. Well, I mean, we're talking about different types. We're talking about the inequalities um, regardless. I mean, these are different types of inequalities. Uh, um, yes, inequality is, you know, for me, this is, the, this is what keeps academics like me in, in a job, is a question of inequality, not just economic inequality, but uh, all types. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, um, uh, Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King, um, who, as everyone knows, fought for civil rights um, and was killed for it. Um, few people know that he was also, in his final years, um, um, hugely committed to economic equality in, uh, or, or dealing with economic inequality. And in fact, possibly, um, as he radicalised around the, that issue in the last few years, that's probably what was more uh, uh, significant in... Um, you know, in the sort of opposition that arose to him in those years, he was mildly tolerable when all he fought for was race rights. You know, the the right to for blacks to have, you know, sort of um, uh, legalistic because it equality. was considered idealistic rather than tangible. Well, also, um, you know, the, the thing about as we've seen in let's say uh, post-apartheid South Africa, that even when you change the uh, racial order, often those material inequalities don't shift. Right. Yes. I mean, you know, if we think about Venezuela at the moment, yeah. Oh, you know, uh, you know, 
um, Venezuela, the Bolivarian Revolution, is about partly about shifting. Um, well, no, it's very much about shifting um, economic inequality. But part of that economic inequality is the inequality around racial differences in that country or built on racial differences. You know, the um, indigenous people or those people who are mixed race with some indigenous background have been hugely economically disadvantaged since Spanish uh, colonisation in the uh, 15th century. Yes. Massively, massively. So the Bolivarian Revolution is on one hand a uh, sort of racial revolution, but at the same time, far more importantly, it's an economic revolution. Now, while it was a racial one, Yes, there was, uh, you know, sort of hatred towards people involved in it. Uh, there was a great deal of antagonism towards racial um, equality, but um, far more, as we've seen in, since the rise of Chavez, far more anger towards, uh, uh, from those with privileges um, towards the shifting of economic um, um, resources from the richest to the poorest. Oh, and I mean, that is the great struggle. And and it's absolutely incredible the Venezuelan thing that uh, the uh, methods of a insurgent struggling uh, working class and poor are being used by the uh, the rich and uh, rich. Yep like going on the streets, but they can't contain themselves because the sheer violence of their attack against people is incredible. We, we reported yeah. last week that uh, there was a, a, a armed men gone onto a bus and doused people with petrol and made them run naked down the uh, uh, highway, which yeah, yeah. was I just mean, over the top. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the, so the socialist revolution in Venezuela has stalled. There's yeah. no doubt about it. You know, the, the drop in oil prices, um, you know, some mismanagement, some, but also the manipulation. From, the manipulation, the sabotage from those in power, or those with economic power, I should say, has uh, played a, a, a significant part in the stalling of the revolution. It hasn't failed. I mean, this is the thing that I find most frustrating when people say, oh, the revolution in Venezuela or in Cuba has failed. Well, hang on a sec. No, what yeah. about the failure of the neoliberal revolution? Yes. There are more, you know, the inequalities in the U.S., the, 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 the huge environmental destruction, the, you know, the, the massive gender inequalities, the racial problems, the, um, the crime, the drug addiction. I mean, you know, Cuba... Yes, it has poverty and it has a whole range of other issues uh, that it, it has to deal with. But, you know, for some reason, people obscure the huge amount of problems that uh, the neoliberal, uh, the neoliberalism has created or capitalism has created in, in many places. Um, we never talk about the failure of capitalism. No, it's interesting because it's uh, the publicity machine that it's got is so intense that uh, yeah. even in um, uh, sort of mawkish uh, situation comedies, they're allowed to berate and make uh, fun of uh, anybody who, uh, as, as uh, adults, anybody who pushes against the system. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the idea that you can want economic inequality or, or to deal with um, economic inequality is seen as some sort of uh, idealism, some sort of... Very tight. You know, uh, Fairy tale, yeah, you know, and those people are often, as you said, lampooned. Um, they're often treated as, uh, you know, sort of airheaded or, you know, unable to deal with reality. 
Um, but what? you know, the re- you know, when we look at the world around us, yeah. some of the most pragmatic people in the world, some of the you know, the certainly those that that I admire a great deal for their intelligence and their pragmatism and their um, you know the huge achievements they've made are people who want who are actually fighting for economic equality. If if we look at um, something else that uh, came on my radar. Uh, with the incredible uh, amount of high-powered UK and US people that have been turning up in Australia, without the pomp and ceremony that usually is uh, given Mm. to people of this nature, that means that they're here for some business and that Australia is really just like a suburb of wherever they're from. So you've got UK, Boris, Boris Johnson was here. The uh, yeah. the uh, English, uh, the UK Minister for Defence was here. You've also got Michael Pence, and we're also expecting the US Energy Minister, the 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 Minister for or whatever they call it, the Minister for um, uh, fracking. In fact, <laughs> right? Okay. What, Is this the guy that was the former? He was the head of a yeah. fast food chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, him. He's coming out. Yeah. And I went to a thing recently where Joss Frydenberg, who apparently calls himself the Minister for Energy and Environment, not the Minister of Environment, uh, yeah, yeah who, who says that he's pressuring they, – their, their strategy, the federal government's strategy, is to pressure the state governments to relinquish resources and that uh, we're going to uh, – we're all about uh, – the environment's all about the cost of electricity. Unbelievable, huh? Yes. Well, unbelievable in one sense and believable in another because these people have been, these types of people have been, um, I mean, you know, it's very interesting. Um, George Monbiot, the um, Guardian, yep. long-time Guardian um, commentator. Uh, journalist, uh, commentator and, and, you know, and uh, a, a, what would you call frontline advocate uh, for years on the environment. That's right. Um, and, other, and many other things. Um I remember reading, he wrote a book uh, maybe about 10 years ago where part of it was where he went undercover in the deep uh, south of the US and attended evangelical uh, church meetings from a number of, in a number of different places. Now, I remember he came out with two conclusions. Uh, one was about Israel-Palestine, which uh, at the time was my major interest. Uh, but um, the second one was around the environment. He said, you know why the, why the evangelicals and the right wing in the U.S. have no interest in the environment? They all think the world's going to end any moment. That, you know, <laughs> yes. there'll be the, you know, the arrival of the um, Antichrist. They're always talking about that. And then the people flying up, uh, the chosen ones flying up and being beamed into a spaceship, whatever craziness they believe in. But he said, you know, they're always talking about the end of the world. So for them, whether we, uh, you know, whether there's one degree warming every year or, whether the you know coal bleachers or whatever is really irrelevant. So the fact that these people uh, are so have such a stranglehold on, say, America, which is the leading imperialist nation yep, of the moment, yep. and yep. their their creeping, seeping influence across Australia, in fact, which has been going on yep. for at least fifteen years. That I, I mean, I lived in a country town and saw. Uh, the Brethren, yeah. for example, take over a yes, whole yes. section of the town. Uh, yeah. This is highly significant, isn't it? It is, because they've also allied themselves with big business, corporate interests, who have similar... So that it seems like there's this, this triangle of 
um, interest in the US in particular, but also, as you said, elsewhere, because of their, their sort of global influence, um, that have aligned interests. There's the um, sort of a Zionist lobby, yep. um, the uh, evangelicals, and you know, big corporate energy and other um, business interests. And, you know, the, the three, that three sort of pronged um, alliance has created a... Strange bedfellows. It's a very strange bedfellows because, I mean, you know, these people who believe in that uh, Christ will return and save them also believe that anyone, anyone who's not a evangelical Christian will be burned Burn. to a cinder where, where they're standing which includes the Zionists, of course, and the people in big corporate, uh, with big corporate money who are backing this propaganda machine. So, uh, you know, the Zionists, of course, believe that they're the chosen ones and they need to re Yeah, uh, and everybody else just... Israel. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody yeah, else um, is deluded. It's <laughs> deluded. And um, big business is uh, just interested in... Well, not just interested, but, uh, you know, um, <coughs> about their, <laughs> their bottom line and their shareholders. They have no interest in the um, sort of ideological uh, or zealotry of the religious zealotry of the other two groups. So, you know, they really are very, very strange bedfellows, except they all have a common goal, and that is to um, uh, to, to sort of, ensure, I guess, their, their common goal is this right-wing propaganda machine. Well, it's interesting it's because really... most people don't really believe... I mean, it's a bit, a little bit like uh, the accord in a way, because you know when they negotiated that in the eighties, people, the the workers made agreements and uh, were much more human and kindly than the boss class. I don't think people actually think that people could be that bad. No, no. Well, I mean, labor has labor aristocracy has played a part in this whole process as well. Um, you know, Agreed. talking about you know the the sort of um, the labour hierarchy. I mean, as we had here in Australia, and you know, I, you know, I have a I have a soft spot for Hawke Keating, of course. Uh, like many people on the left, uh, some soft spot. I've got some, but you know that that neoliberal moment in a, in Australia in the nineteen eighties under Hawke Keating um, was probably unnecessary. You know, no, no, it's a free kick. I mean, if you're going to take, do a um, sporting analogy, it was a free yeah. kick. Yeah, and I know, I understand that, that to some extent they saw it as inevitable and necessary and felt that if Labor did it, it would be kinder than if it was left to, you know, um, at the time. The uh, Spanish Howard Inquisition. And, and, yeah, and uh, the likes. But and, and to some extent, I think there's a truth in that. I mean, the accord would have been, was much friendlier we didn't have the union busting in the 1980s that we saw in the US and the UK. Um, we didn't see the mass, you know, sort of the mass marginalisation in the same way. Um, it did come. It came with Howard, in, and we all remember Peter Reith and Howard trying to bust the uh, Wharfy the, the Wharfy unions in 90, was it 97, 98? 86. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, so we did have that moment, but we could have had it. It could have been far more brutal. So you know, there's got to keep that in mind. But nonetheless, when Labor signed on to the neoliberal agenda, it sort of meant that the left was implicated in the project, such as same as New Labor in the UK. Um, oh yeah, that meant there was there was no opposition. 
And what we've seen in the UK with Corbyn and the rise of the new Labour is this realisation that the, when I say new Labour, I mean a, uh, sort of, I don't know what you call what it. What do you call it? Fractioning you know. of the Labour Party. Yeah, Corbynite fractioning of the party is that the Labour Party, some considerable element of the left have gone, well, we've got to disassociate ourselves from our role in the, in the neoliberal project. We've got to, you know, find a new way of... Um, of making ourselves relevant. I think that has to happen here as well. Well, you know, no, um, they're beating the drum. They're beating for a war. The the right wing are beating for a war now. Sorry, the who are? The the right wing. uh, uh, Well, our present uh, Liberal government, uh, Liberal Natch, I mean, they've been found with their fingers in the till. Uh, People like uh, Barnaby Joyce has been aiding, if not abetting, uh, the uh, stealing of water, which is yeah, yeah. incredible, and uh, the just a whole range of absolute uh, behaviours that where you realise that some people can't even spell the word corruption, it would appear to yeah. me. Um, I mean, neoliberalism at its very core is about corruption. It's about transferring public assets to private hands. That's right. That's, that, that is, for me, if you wanted to sum up what neoliberalism is, it is the transfer of public assets and, and what's owned c- commonly into private hands. That's right. And, and now, so, here, here they're talking about, you know, they, you've got uh, North Korea as a cat's paw and uh, the Americans and the... And, and uh, Turnbull actually talked about, is now, is now reporting that Australia will be drawn into a war with North Korea because of our treaties. He's actually said yeah. it, right? Yeah. So obviously, yeah. uh, the war card is the next in the arsenal. Well, possibly, except I mean, there's no coming know, back from North a nuclear Korea. war. Uh, well, well, North Korea. Uh, I mean, they have a nuclear capacity, but you know, when when we think about what they could possibly do, uh, the sophistication and the range and, and, and the sustain of, and, and their yeah, ability I mean, to sustain it. Yeah, and I mean the thing is that we won't have an, uh, you know, I, I, look. I, I mean, can't yeah. say we won't have anything, but I don't think there is. I, I don't think. Yeah, you know, this is this is as you said. It's about beating the drums, and it's about distracting people from the big issues. I mean, that's what the vote. All this stuff around marriage equality is a distraction. Yeah, is a major distraction. I don't mean to undervalue the uh, and the, the importance the to marriage. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not doing that at all. I'm just saying that the way that the libs are playing it is about making this the core issue. And it is a very important issue, but it's not one that requires this level of... No, they should just get um, on with business. They should get on. Well, and that's what they're doing. That's behind what they're the elected scenes, for. What, no, but behind the scenes, while we're all focused on how do, we, how do we fight this struggle for marriage equality, they will be conducting business. That's right. Yeah, that's you exactly know, right. Get, you know... And, and what what policies and what um, what occurs in this period will be very 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 um, telling. There, there's a great article by I can't remember the author's name, but there's a great article by um, a visiting scholar to Australia from the US about ten years ago, where he talks about during the Iraq war, the US invasion of Iraq, the economic uh, changes that were made in that period were probably the most far-reaching in the U.S. in many decades, since mm-hmm. Reagan. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So while while whilst the U.S. was, you know, the left and the right were were sort of arguing or, or com, 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 in conflict over the U.S.'s role in Iraq, and whilst that was daily news, things like you know the um, end of public sector uh, working workers' rights across the yep. U.S. Yep. The you know all these things That's that all. occurred, you know, huge uh, reforms that undermined. Uh, people's working rights, wages, environmental um, uh, uh, the, the uh, um, protections of the environment all went through in this period of about two or three years with next to no media or public attention because everyone was looking at the body bags every day. Oh, my God. So you're completely right. Focus on the ball. And and before we go, because we have to go, uh, interesting reflection on North Korea. It's a pool of cheap labour for China. Did you know that? The, the China, no, I didn't know. Isn't that interesting? Uh, a lot of people from North Korea go and work as in, uh, in uh, Africa and places like that for Chinese contractors. Okay. Isn't All right. Well, I mean, China, well, China is now in many ways has a neoliberal edge just as sharp as Every, any other country in the world. Hmm. Anyway, that's fascinating. Is, I hope we get to talk to you again in a month's time. Yeah, that would be fantastic. And Gr- yeah, I really look forward to it. And I'll make sure that I fit in, I factor in the three-legged dog. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, she's she's doing well. She had a bone tumour, so Ooh. she's, uh, yeah, yeah, so we had to amputate one of her hind legs. But she's coping and she's bouncing around, so it's all good news. <laughs> Have a good weekend. Yeah, you too, Annie. Great to talk to you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, and that was Dr. Noah Persil from uh, Sydney, and it's uh, great to have him back on the team. Uh, we're going to have to finish up uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie this morning. Uh, coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. I'll just do a quick rundown of what we had on the program. We talked to Don Sutherland, who's uh, our Sydney correspondent. In uh, He's uh, also in Sydney. He, he went off and uh, uh, reviewed what uh, Brendan O'Connor, the... Uh, Shadow uh, uh, Minister for uh, Industry had to say uh, about the broken rules. We uh, heard from Sally McManus again. This is the week that was. And then Dr. Pasil. As I said, Asia-Pacific Currents is coming up and we're going to go out with Warrior in Woolworths XY Specs.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.